Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, actor, director, producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, perhaps one that influenced their own work. And today, I'm very excited to have writer, director, and actor as well, Lauren Miller Rogan with Hello. me. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming oh, yeah. to our cute little <laughs> our cute little studio. With an amazing view. Yeah. That's the the one big thing that we try to lure people with, right? Yeah. 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 Look at the view. The view is great. You don't get a view in LA. Yeah. Okay, that's... and then get into this box. <laughs> Essentially, get into this box for an hour. The view in this box is less grand than the one out the it's window. It's true. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. I have you looking at the wall as well. Great. Um, so for those of you who are not as familiar with Lauren's work, please let me give you an introduction. Raised in New York and Florida, Lauren graduated from the film school at Florida State University. She started her career writing and or directing short films like Measure of Love, Happy Holidays, and The Perfect Fit but switched gears a little and got in front of the camera. As an actor, she's appeared in Superbad, Observe and Report, Zack and Mary Make a Porno, 50-50, Better Off Single, Someone Marry Barry, Sausage Party, and most recently in Izzy Gets the Fuck Across Town. Uh, it's a little indie film that I think actually premiered at L.A. Film Festival last year or the year before. And on TV, Master of None, Another Period, Ben and Kate, and Grey's Anatomy. Just a little show called Grey's Anatomy. Um, but in 2012, she co-wrote produced and starred in the indie comedy For a Good Time Call, opposite Ari Grainer. The film premiered at the 2012 Sundance Film Festival and was released by Focus Features. Now you can see it on Netflix. And speaking of Netflix, that's also where you can find Lauren's directorial debut, Like Father, which she also wrote and produced. The film stars Kristen Bell and Kelsey Grammer and Seth Rogen and tells the story of a workaholic daughter, Bell, who is left at the altar and reconnects with her estranged dad, played by Grammer, uh, when they wind up together on a honeymoon cruise. Wacky! (laughs) Outside of her film work, we should note that Lauren also co-founded the Alzheimer's organization, Hilarity for Charity, with her husband, Seth Rogen, which also has a special you can find on Netflix. I feel like we should be sponsored by Netflix for don't this Don't worry, the whole world is sponsored by Netflix. They don't need anything else from us. Oh, that, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yes. <laughs> so today, Lauren, you chose to talk about a little film called Unbreakable. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited to talk about it. I know. <laughs> just bursting at the seams. Can you tell me just a little bit about why you chose that as one of your fave films? Well, I when I first saw it was, when did it come out? 2002? To check my notes 2000 yes yeah 2000 yes. so so i was like just getting into i was studying fashion design in new york at the time okay but i had decided uh sort of around 2000 2001 was leaning toward going toward film and so i was starting to watch movies in like a new way and was like paying attention to them and i thought it was really cool and in film school it was the kind of movie that like we all talked about because it was shot really well and mm-hmm. like And it was like an inspiring movie, but I had kind of forgotten about it until a few weeks ago when the trailer for Glass or Mr. Glass came out. And I was like, oh, my God, I loved that movie. And that it's a trilogy. Yeah. Which I didn't know because I didn't see the 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 middle one because it looked scary to me. Because <laughs> so, I don't really watch scary, really scary movies. I like thriller movies, but like a, like a horror movie, I, ugh, I'm not it's too much. It's for too you. much for me. Yeah, and so I didn't see that. But now I'm going to go back and watch because I, I'm so excited. 
It's a cool world. And you're talking about Split, I think, right? Yes, yeah, the second that, one. That's what it's yes. called. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. definitely. Um, it is not as scary as you would think, although I am not the best judge of that because I'm very Perhaps. rarely scared. <laughs> so maybe don't listen to me. <laughs> My husband was like, ooh, and he kind of knows what I can handle. Yeah. Maybe like in an afternoon, I'll watch it, like with people around. It's bright out. Everything. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like I'll know that James McAvoy's not coming to get me that night. <laughs> God, I hope he's not. <laughs> or maybe he could. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Or just, you know, ask him to star in your mm-hmm. next film. Sure. And it'll be Whatever. easier. That'd be fine. Um, so for those <laughs> of you who have not seen Unbreakable, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that should not stop you from listening before you watch, as always. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to pause and watch Unbreakable, this is your chance. Pause. And you're back. So (laughs) let me give you a quick synopsis, just in case you forgot what you just watched. Written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan for release in 2000, Unbreakable stars Bruce Willis and David Dunn as David Dunn, a security guard who miraculously becomes the only survivor of a devastating train wreck. An eccentric comic book art dealer named Elijah Price, played by Samuel L. Jackson, contacts David after the crash and begins questioning him. Has David ever gotten ill or injured before? So Elijah, who has a rare condition that makes his bones highly susceptible to breaks, believes David to be a real-life man of steel, impervious to injury. But David insists that's not true. He was injured in a car wreck years earlier that almost killed his now wife, played by Robin Wright. And it's the reason he gave up his football career. Elijah keeps pushing the matter and visits David at the stadium where David works. While he's there, David correctly has a hunch that a man has brought a gun to the stadium, but he doesn't make a big deal out of it. But this is enough to actually convince Elijah that David is a superhero, someone who can sense evil before it happens. Meanwhile, David and his wife are sussing out whether or not they should get back together, and Elijah is doing everything in his power to make David realize his powers. Eventually, David admits to himself that he faked his injury in the car wreck because his wife would have left him if he hadn't ended his football career. He practices his sensory powers and tracks home a guy who's murdered people and held children captive in their home. David successfully frees the children and captures the killer and returns home to live in anonymity with only his son knowing the truth that his dad is a real-life superhero. Oh, and Elijah knows, too, and Elijah has also been holding a very devastating secret. Mm -hmm. Twist! Amazing. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, come on. That's so awesome. Weird. (laughs) I think, okay, so I feel like one thing that we need to talk about about this movie in particular is I don't know that Shyamalan gets enough credit for what he was doing in the year 2000. Because this is before Logan. Right. You know, this is before Mm -hmm. any kind of taking superheroes seriously. Right, like a real-life man, human being becoming someone who has superpowers. Exactly. Yeah, you're totally right. What year was Spider? The first Spider-Man, which I sort of mark as sort of the beginning of that. The Sam Raimi one? Yeah, that was late. It was like 2002 or three. Yeah, I think it was. And a lot of those... Um, kind of Marvel, DC things like the Nolan, Batman, those didn't come out until after 9-11. Yeah, way later. Yeah. So this is like a pre-9-11 movie that almost has tones of that mm-hmm. kind of moroseness that really you does. start getting later on. Yeah. He was like ahead of the curve. I know he was. I didn't think about I didn't think about that, but you're totally right in that like he definitely was, yeah, ahead of the curve on creating that like relatable, real 
like superhero. It, it seems like it came out later. So when I looked at my notes and I was like, oh no, it yeah. was 2000. Yeah. He was ahead of everything. Yeah. I guess we wouldn't Good have a him. Logan without I guess so. an Unbreakable Maybe. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the one thing that that Shyamalan was really adamant about with this script um, was that the two central characters would be as interesting and multidimensional as the heroes and villains in the comic books that he loved. Mm. According to him, quote, there's no black and white characters in the movie. The villain is endearing and has wonderful qualities about him. Um, So you have Sam L. Jackson, Mr. Glass, Mm -hmm. being endeared to us not just because of his ailments, but because he's so smart and actually quite charming. And then you've got David Dunn, who represents the side of good, but who is not without his faults. Mm -hmm. He's not, he's like, yeah, he's he's not very fun. Right. We'll <laughs> right. Right. And he's clearly uh, one of my issues, I have to say, that I didn't pick up on when I watched it years ago that I did when I watched it the other day. Yeah. How does he not realize he doesn't get sick? Like, is, is he so dense in his own world that he's not picked up on the fact that he's 47 years old or however old Bruce Willis was, mm-hmm. which which I will say led to me wondering if it was written for a younger man. Oh. And he, and then I'm like, Chamalan was like, but you know who's awesome, Bruce Willis. Yeah. It's like, I already worked with him in the sixth yeah. sense and yeah. I know that he'll do it. Right. But like, but that, that sort of like stood out to me this time. I was like, how did he not know? What does that say about him that he had been living sort of in a, oblivion a little bit about who mm-hmm. he is? I wish we could have done a bit of more of a deep dive into, like, how he didn't realize it before. Yeah. And even if he didn't realize he was a superhero, how did he not realize, like, that he was – he didn't get the flu yeah. or whatever it was. Never got injured playing football. Never, you know. Mm-hmm. And how did, like, the ENTs or whoever came to the site of the car crash, like – with like, if he went to the hospital, which I assume he did, how did he create fake records that said he was injured? Well, <laughs> I'm picking apart the movie that I love. I didn't mean to go down this, this path. This is one of those things with Shyam- <laughs> like Shyamalan movies. It's it's you got to suspend. You do. You have to suspend yeah. all of these things, and you can't ask a lot of those questions. Yeah. He's he's asking you to just accept what's happening yeah. as what's happening. Yeah. And that's something that I think a lot of um, specifically American filmgoers are not willing to do. Yeah, um, totally. But oh it's my also, God. you know, I appreciate the kind of magical realism that he has mm-hmm. because I am willing to, totally. to suspend my disbelief. Well, and I think that something you touched on a minute ago was how deep the development is with these characters. Yeah. And it's so simple. There's only a few characters in this movie. Yeah. But you really feel like they are so within the world that has been created. Yes. They are so three-dimensional and you get such an insight into, especially Sam Jackson, like such yes. an insight into how he became who he is in this movie, which is fascinating. And there's, there's you know, an old screenwriting thing is that when you're writing two characters, that they need to be kind of, um, they need to be opposing each other in interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think that he succeeds with here. Yeah. And I, I want to relate that also to your movie, Like Father, because you have two characters, Kristen Bell and um, Kelsey Grammer's characters, who are both similar and opposites. Mm-hmm. And I was curious if you could, you know, let us in on the process of trying to figure out how to make them opposite but the same. Mm -hmm. So the idea for the original, the the 
kernel of the idea, the woman who gets left at the altar and her estranged dad, who she hasn't seen since she was a little girl, shows mm-hmm. up at the wedding and they end up on her honeymoon cruise, was given to me by Anders Bard, who's one of the producers of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I was just like super into it and just thought, what a cool emotional journey to take characters on. Um, but then when I sat down to write it, I was like, oh, I don't know what happens here. <laughs> like, I don't. Yeah. Why does he come back into her life? Why does she need him to come back into her <laughs> life? Like, what does what does him coming back into her life do for him? Like, why does he need her now? And so I realized, oh, this fun idea was not nearly as simple as I thought it was. And so I constantly had to. Are you a person who com- overcomplicates things in general, or um, sometimes yes, and sometimes no? Okay, I'm very logical, and I'm not. I'm I'm very decisive. So like, I wouldn't overcomplicate that. But as far as like breaking down a story goes, yes. I have 17 drafts of the first like 20 pages of this movie. Yes, and so had to go through all these different places and constantly try to answer the question of. Why do these two people affect each other's lives? Why do they need each other right now? Yes. Which I eventually arrived at that she is starting to make the same mistakes that he made. She is much more like him than she realizes. And that he is on the other side of his mistakes, making him like her. Yeah. And needs to sort of right his wrongs as well. And that's why he comes back because he's alone. Yes. And needs her. And so that's sort of how I found that balance of like, Oh, these are two characters who, when they meet in the middle, are alike, but sort of on the outside think they they are different and opposite, and, and she's so angry at him and, and should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, But sort of when you tear down all those things are two people who are a father and daughter who are very much alike. Harry, what the fuck? Why did you do that? I'm coming in. What were you thinking? I'll be honest. I wasn't thinking. And maybe it wasn't the best idea. But I'm worried about you. Look at this place. It's beautiful. And you're sending emails. That's my phone. I have important shit on there. I think we should stay on the cruise. I don't really care what you think. You go on back to New York. Go ahead. Get back to your job. Start making a lot of money. But all the Owens out there, they'll still keep leaving you. It's not my fault Owen left. Nor do I care. And I don't need you or anyone else worrying about me. What are you going to do when you get back? Huh? Are you going to go on pretending you're still fine with what happened the other day? You can't admit that all this is fucking crazy? Huh? Do you do any kind of, like, lists of, like, character traits or anything? Oh, sure. Oh, that's how I start. Yeah. Totally. Make like a, a list of like, okay, well, this is Rachel and this mm-hmm. is, uh, what's Kelsey Grammer's characters? Harry. Harry. Mm-hmm. So this is Rachel and this is Harry. Totally. Uh, you know, what could they do for their jobs? What do they like to do for fun? What what are things they enjoy? What are, you know, once I would sort of arrive at, okay, Rachel's someone who's into her career. Like, what are scenes that could show her being into her career? What, what would be like in her apartment? Um, just sort of, that's how I start is with lists of those things. Is that how you started with uh, For a Good Time Call when you were co-writing that as Same. well? Same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just sort of Katie, Lauren. Uh, what does Lauren like to do? What does Katie like to do? What could be their jobs? What do they do for fun? What could they do for fun together? Why? What are some stories that happened in their past? And it just sort of, those lists become scenes. Um, which then become an outline, which then become a script. That's maybe a little bit different, too, because you are also playing a character, so perhaps you get to just mm-hmm. also make a character that you would prefer to play. Totally. I mean, I we when we wrote that, the plan was not for me to play Lauren. I mean, it, we sort of wrote it <laughs> somewhat narcissistically, making these somewhat caricatures of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but there was no we didn't have that idea in our heads. I mean, certainly in the back of my heart of hearts, I was like, I want to play Lauren, but I never said it out loud at all in the writing of it at all. That took a long time to get to that, but um, mm-hmm. but um, but yeah, but I think as an actor in general. What I bring to writing is that sort of actor mind and I will sort of like in the more emotional moments, like I will cry with my characters and I will like get angry with them or I will laugh with them. Mm -hmm. Um, Years ago, I had taken an improv for writers class and like it was a really – it was just a really uh, sort of taught me how to just sort of like push through. Not that I don't get blocked. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) But but just sort of a a sort of way to like – Literally, like, improvise as you write and, like, which is, you know, with lists and just sort of, like, throwing shit out there. Writing 17 drafts until you find a good one. Yeah. And just, like, letting it go. If it doesn't work, let it go. Um, I wanted to go into a little bit more about scripting stuff that Shyamalan does. Um, when he's working um, on a movie, he comes up with a central, quote, awakening moment for his characters. And he builds the film around this. Mm. Contrary to popular belief, he doesn't want his movies to actually revolve around the twist ending or just to be known for the twist. But that's just where it has ended up. He said, quote, I wanted to make feature length Twilight Zone. Something amazing happens in the last second. And you realize that what you were watching wasn't what you were watching. Mm. You watch it a second time and you realize it was inevitable. My movies have become known so much for their endings. An idea develops into this wonderful revelation and now I sit down and go do you really want to do the revelation it's something I'm going to be struggling with for a long time so Mm. he's still like these are interviews that he was doing back when like the the DVD came out and he was still Mm -hmm. struggling and he's still got twist endings here's the thing (laughs) Um, so if anything I feel what Shyamalan was saying and that you know he would say now is that you honestly can't fight against your instincts this is just who you are and it sucks (laughs) you're just like oh Fuck, is this mm-hmm. who I am? Is mm-hmm. this what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it works here. I think so. It totally worked. I mean, I, I love – I was talking about the, that movie The Village also yeah. the other day. And, like, that movie got me. Like, I remember being in the movie theater with my friend Dan. We went to see it together. I remember I was, like, clutching him mm-hmm. and, like, did not see it coming. And I, I'm glad that he's committed to who he must be. But it's hard. I, I have to say, like, as – someone who has just sort of finished her first directorial feature like it's a it's a it's a little bit of a crazy thing to be like oh this is what i made this is and to compare it to what i thought it would be or what i meant to be in, in certain parts you know what i mean and mm-hmm. so it's interesting to hear someone like M. Night Shyamalan who's in my mind so it seems so sure of the stories that he's telling and, and yeah. his style and his tone and seems to know what he's doing to know that he questions that I have to tell you has just made me feel really good (laughs) (laughs) that's good I mean yeah Yeah. this this show is essentially therapy so just so just to let you know most podcasts are I was listening to one on the way here and I literally was like and then my therapist had told me to listen to (laughs) um, but it was like I was like hmm Sort of serenely listening, feeling yeah. good about myself. It's it's <laughs> it's nice to just hear people talking. Yeah, it's like other people in the room. I guess so. <laughs> but I, you know, I think that uh, it is nice to hear Shyamalan. Like when I, I think we need to also relate back the fact that like he was still a very relatively new filmmaker when Unbreakable came out. Oh yeah, um, the Sixth Sense obviously was his breakout. Right. But, but I can't imagine the pressure that he felt coming off of the Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense, like. I, Oh God, it's, it's intense. He must. It just must have been. It's it's just such a raw, 
crazy experience putting your movie baby into the world and like yeah and also doing um doing something different different that has not been done before because mm-hmm. you know again going back to you know Logan and any of the super hero serious movies mm-hmm. um for him it was like a fighting an uphill battle with his cast and crew mm-hmm. like the everyone who was interviewed for this was like it wasn't like a pretty thing right and so oh, that's interesting one of the things that we're going to get into in a little bit is we're going to talk about that but we're going to take one quick break um so you'll wait and come come right back okay. we're going to talk about these things okay all right we'll bye. be here welcome thank you no problem. these are real podcast listeners not actors What do you look for in a podcast? Reliability is big for me. Power. I'd say comfort. What do you think of this? That's Jordan Jesse Go. Jordan Jesse Go? They came out of the floor? And down from the ceiling? That can't be safe. I'm upset. Can we go now? Soon. Jordan Jesse Go, a real podcast. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here today with Lauren Miller-Rogan. And we are talking about Unbreakable. Unbreakable. Okay, so where we left off was Shyamalan having a hard time convincing cast and crew about everything. Um, Bruce Willis had read the script, for instance, and he said it was more serious than he was anticipating. (laughs) He was not prepared for that because Shyamalan was just like, yeah, superhero. He's like realizing his powers. He's like, yeah, it sounds fun. And then he looks at it and he's like, oh, I'm like a dour, sad person for most of this. Um, and so no one really knew what was happening. And that's mm-hmm. kind of a hard thing. I don't know, like, even as an actor, when you kind of, like, put your trust mm-hmm. in a director that they know what they're doing, even if no one else seems to right. understand what that vision Yeah, yeah, I get is, that. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's hard. It's an interesting... Wow, this is so fascinating hearing all this. Yeah, there was a potential mutiny because that can happen on film sets. What? You know, where like people are just like they have got a bad attitude and they're mm-hmm. like this, like we don't trust the director, yeah. like that kind of thing. Interesting. But, Did they say what the mutiny was almost caused by? I, it, <laughs> there's a there's a few kind of uh, passive aggressive comments that I thought was pretty interesting because um, one of the things that compounded the tension on set was that Shyamalan would shoot a scene with traditional coverage, mm-hmm. you know, maybe some over the shoulder, maybe like you know multiple places to cut for your editor. Um, uh, reaction shots, any of that. But as the shoot went on, he would totally reimagine the scene and then have them shoot it all over again. I, <laughs> that's my dream. <laughs> Literally, I'm always like, I always want to be able to be like, let's get the crazy shot, but we'll we'll be sure to get the, the traditional stuff just in case yeah. to be safe. That's so amazing. But, so the thing is that like as the shoot went on, they, they didn't it. get any coverage. Right. They only had the weird. the like, And he was getting really obsessed with... Um, the single, um, mm-hmm. the single take, mm-hmm. um, and so it's a really long take, and right. I think there's somewhere around thirty of them mm-hmm. in the film, which is quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, they involve a lot of choreography, obviously, mm-hmm. um, and the actors have to hit all their marks. Mm-hmm. Cinematography has to be on point; everything has to be in focus, and, and it just became very, very difficult. Yes, um, yeah, I bet. But looks amazing, and I think in a movie like that where. The mood is so is everything yes. is like like the color of it and the the contrast and the just the whole world of it is everything. If that movie was bright and colorful and whatever, 
it wouldn't have the weight that it has. And so I think that doing those like long oneers, yes, I mean, creates this like, oh, this like dreadful tension of like, what is happening here that I think is what makes that movie so cool. I do too. And I, um, it's one of those things, you know, when we had our Children of Men episode. Mm. Um, oh my God. With one of the most famous oneers ever. Exactly. And one of the reasons why, you know, they wanted to do those in Children of Men was because the actors could pace the scene. Mm-hmm. And Shyamalan had the exact same idea. And in fact, I think this was made before Children of Men. Yeah. Oh, so was, yeah. Shyamalan was doing this before Children of Men had kind of gone into the idea of Amazing. the slow dread pacing from the actors. Amazing. Although Spielberg was the one who really started the Wonner. Yeah, he did. And yeah. and his choreography of the Wonners is pretty impeccable. You've got yeah. people coming up in, in the shot, coming back. Like, there's people in the background. Everything mm-hmm. is choreographed. He doesn't do it simply. No. Yeah, you know, it's very complex. Yes. And in fact, Shyamalan actually, uh, one night, went and um, needed to inspire his crew. And so he got a... Uh, an original print of Jaws. <gasps> like, That's amazing. Went to the theater in Philadelphia and started playing at 1 a.m. for cast and crew oh to get them inspired, to be like, this is what we can do. Right. Because there's a lot of really, really great oneers in Jaws. Right. And it's fun, but it's serious. And he was he was looking for them to be inspired by this. Right. What, what was the kind of stuff that you were asking your cast and crew to be inspired by when you were working on like father. Well, I, you know, I really set out to make a dramedy, not a comedy at yeah. all. Um, and were people expecting a comedy from you, though? Yeah, okay. of course. You look at me, you look at our cast, and you think comedy. Yeah, Kristen Bell, happy. Princess Anna, yep. Seth Rogen, funny. Mm-hmm. Um, stoner, um, which is why it's interesting about what we sort of touched on with expectations and whatnot. Yes. Um, and so I always had to go back to no, I want this to feel like the real grounded version of this story that maybe if you want to say that it's, you know, a big idea, you can. But mm-hmm. also it is, you know, cruises happen. Thousands of people take them. <laughs> um, and so, yes. yeah, my sister takes one like once a year. I'm like, really? My in-laws take like four a year. And um, I know. And um, and so so I just kept going back to I want this to feel real and grounded. So I really um would go back to movies like The Descendants, mm-hmm. which is sort of covered in a very, like, shot in a very simple way. But the emotion of the story and this the sort of real characters. Yeah. And Alexander Payne does that in a few of his movies. Yeah. For sure. yeah. And so, you know, Sideways, which I didn't – is sort of a more specific movie than, than this, but yeah. is sort of just sort of that, that idea um, – um, and that's the sort of indie-er side, like Nicole Hollif Center is someone that I think mm-hmm. just creates such real portraits of emotional people and just sort of that feel like they're grounded but living in reality. Yeah. Um, I hadn't thought about that when I watched your movie, but now it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Nicole Hollif yeah, Center. Yeah. And, um, you know, Jim Brooks is, you know, all, you know, all those movies, you know, his from like every – years and decades of his amazing works. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, those type of movies are the ones that I sort of really relate to um, and tried to draw inspiration from, um, you know, and definitely it was set in this like really colorful world. And I really tried w- at every turn to sort of like keep that world, which could turn into Disney World, to be a little bit more grounded. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, Unbreakable's doing a little bit of that same thing where you have to keep reining it in, where Mm -hmm. it can't just be like a Royal Caribbean commercial. Right. 
Right. You know, right. It, it has to be. Right. And I, the cinematography, I think, in Like Father, I thought was the, the color palettes were, yeah. were very interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. we. I mean, we, we paid attention to that stuff. We really tried to sort of put some thought into that. So like in the beginning, the the color palette is much more like muted and darker and more blues and grays and sort of cooler greens. And then as the movie goes on, it just naturally gets warmer and brighter and and more warmth to it. Um, and we, you know, and then also like with the, like in the beginning in New York, the camera is locked off. It doesn't move. Mm-hmm. It's very rigid in her world. And when they wake up on the cruise ship, we're suddenly moving the camera and things are handheld and they're a little bit more, you know, unexpected. And, and we tried to sort of like infuse little bits of that in there. Yeah. Were you using a lot of natural light on the cruise ship? Oh, yeah. I mean, we, you know, we had stuff with us. But, yeah, there's sunshine but, all over the place. But there's, so. Yes. So like, you know, and my, and my DP, Seamus Tierney, is, was very good at harnessing that light. Um, and um, But it's a it's a bright world. Like even in that cabin, like one wall of it is windows. Mm-hmm. Like so even, you know, toward the end of the day, you know, maybe we put up a light or two, but a lot of it was natural. And we just sort of tried to keep it really natural with like, you know, long lenses and sort of, you know, sort of trying to create like trying to make a world that feels broad trying to make it feel less broad yes <laughs> yes and you know if we if we talk about color too in unbreakable you have a really specific color oh, palette that, yes. that also shifts mm-hmm. throughout mm-hmm. i mean so we've got the color palette for david dunn mm-hmm. which is a lot of greens right. a lot of muted greens mm-hmm. and then you've got the purples for Mr. Glass. Uh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And like the purples and blacks for, for Mr. Glass, which mm-hmm. I love that Sam L. Jackson was like, the only thing I added to this character was that I needed him to wear purple and have a, a glass cane. Oh, really? Oh, he he brought that to it? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. He was like, I want him to wear purple because it's regal and it's royal and he sees himself as very royal. Oh, that's amazing. I was like, yeah, it's yeah, perfect. Yeah, no, it totally works. So then you've got those two colors playing off of yeah. each other. And, it, the, you know, they're kind of traditional comic book colors. It so works. Like, yeah. it really – well, like – and, you know, some of those – which scene was it uh, where Bruce Willis is fighting? Is it is the guy at the end maybe? But anyway, like, it sort of mimics the shots from some of those comic books that we've seen. Absolutely. And, like, just and, – and the color of it and, and just the creation of him sort of mimicking those characters from those comic books, which is just like, oh, I see what he's doing and it's cool. Yeah. The, um, the storyboarding of his movie, of Unbreakable, it looks exactly like the movie and mm-hmm. it is essentially a full comic book. Mm. Oh, wow. That's cool. Um you know, so it, it's it's very interesting what he was trying to do in comic book panels. Um, you have to tell so much of the story in just a single panel, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you have to have a lot of right. busyness in like foreground and background. And so, you know, someone looking in a mirror very often is something that you, right. you get through right. like his, his compositions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He's so smart the way he, he – I mean, the whole movie, it feels like a dark comic book. Which is cool. And and that's what's interesting about the genre of it, which is how it shifts from you think it's like a dark kind of thriller and becomes a superhero movie. Yeah. Which is interesting. And I think some of that is done through that shift in color and become it becomes a superhero movie. That's one of the things, you know, that I look at uh, Shyamalan's uh, relationship with, uh, you know, Bruce Willis and Sam Jackson in this movie. And these are two actors also who don't get to do a full range of all the things that they want to mm-hmm. do. You know, Bruce Willis is definitely the yippie Kaye for a reason. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, he gets to do some kind of 
you know, dramatic work yeah. when he's with Shyamalan. Mm-hmm. Um, Sam L. Jackson doesn't have to do the like, hey, motherfuckers. Like, right. And he loves doing that. <laughs> sure. But like, I think like any actor, you would want to do a variety of right. whatever. Right, right. Totally. And well, you know, and it's, it's just so interesting because... And I'm certainly far from the first person who said this. And I always think of one of my favorite songs from the Oscars. That's such a weird thing to say. <laughs> Years ago, I think Judd Apatow and Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, maybe Jack Black, too. Mm-hmm. No, maybe Will Ferrell wasn't there. I don't remember. But did this like a song about how comedy is disrespected. Oh. <laughs> and like and how, you know, in my own experience as an actor as and as a director, like, I have to say a comedy is much harder. And to me, like, I could, like, scream and throw things down and cry because it's all right there and I can just emote it out. But, like, to make someone laugh is hard. And Mm -hmm. I think we have this sort of thing where, like, we all think we're funny. Like, I'm on a board for stem cells in California and it's a board of scientists. And they're lovely, unbelievably intelligent people who think they're hilarious. (laughs) And they're not. A lot of stem cell jokes. A lot of stem cell jokes. And you know, again, <laughs> they are brilliant minds changing health for human yeah, beings. Yeah, they don't need to be funny. It's all right. Like, and like, but you know, my husband always tells this story about when he was cast on Freaks and Geeks and like his friends are like, why you? I'm funny. And like Aww. they are, but they don't write. They don't come up with things the way he does. And like, that's a thing. And I think that comedy gets disrespected because everyone thinks they're funny. Yeah. And it's a different skill to be funny, but also entertain someone with comedy. Yes. Yeah. And then, yeah, you've Mm -hmm. got all of these people who can do comedy, Mm -hmm. but then choose maybe to do drama. I mean, I'll be honest, as someone who, you know, who acts like acting dramatically is much easier for, for me. Even though I don't get those opportunities ever, except for Grey's Anatomy, which I auditioned for six times, by the way. Six times? Mm-hmm. Wow. Over the course of seven or eight years. So. How did that happen? The casting director just kept bringing me back, and I was never right, never right, never right. And time number six, I was. And then you were right. Like, by time number six, were you just like, no, fuck this. Like, no, it was it was like, I got to get on this fucking show. <laughs> you know what I mean? And my manager, like, knew it was like we had just, like, set Grey's Anatomy as, like, the thing. <laughs> and, like, and then and then it happened. <laughs> but, but, yeah, but I always think that's an important tidbit to, like, get out there in the world that, like, I went in for that show six times. Like, it's not easy. Yeah. You hear that out there? Mm-hmm. Just keep trying. Keep going. <laughs> I, I'm, I am curious. I want to go back to the idea of um, trying to get your like cast and crew inspired mm-hmm. for this. Did you have to do any convincing with uh, Kelsey Grammer or Kristen Bell that they were going to be playing uh, dramatic roles off of each other? Or yeah, I mean, it was a constant conversation. Um, you know, and it's just it's so interesting, like being in this process of like retrospect now, and I like think about all these things and conversations, and should I have done this and should I have done that, and like, and don't get me wrong, I'm so proud of it, but it's just natural to be like, oh, but what if I had done this this way? Oh yeah, you know. And so yes, early on, it was very important to me that um, Kelsey not look like Kelsey, and so that's why he grew the beard, um, just because I didn't, you know, I don't. He's so recognizable with who he is and we love him but I wanted to sort of see him look different than how we are somewhat used to him looking which is that sort of clean yes. you know Fraser face yes um, and with Kristen it was a 
it was a constant conversation of I wanted her to look as natural as possible. And, you know, and just sort of like, sure, she goes and buys her lip gloss and her mascara and let's keep it at that. And like, let's keep your clothing like you bought the cute dress from the souvenir shop and like you're not wearing the designer sundress, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. You, You don't get to be the pretty princess. Yeah. Yeah. Through this. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a it was just always a, a constant like, you know, just conversation of like, let's keep checking in with like as, you know, the reality of the situation and like how ha- like Rachel doesn't wake up and get her hair and makeup done. And yeah. like, you know what I mean? And like because she's on a cruise ship. So I just really wanted to like live in that world of like the reality of that. Yeah. they. I mean, both of them are really fantastic, dramatic actors. Oh, and right? I think it's something that we forget. I mean, Kristen Bell being on Veronica Mars, yes, she played a lot of comedy in that, but there mm-hmm. was a, quite a bit of drama, you know. Well, it's funny. I, I hadn't watched Veronica Mars before uh, this movie, and but obviously through the making it, whenever yeah. I would tell people she's in this movie, they're like, oh, my God, Veronica Mars, Veronica Mars, Veronica Mars. So I was like, okay, I'm going to watch Veronica Mars. So in, I think in like April or so, I had a lot of time apart with my husband this past year, so I had a lot of time for my own shows. So I dove into Veronica Mars in like a two-week period and watched the whole thing, oh. which of course was amazing. Yeah. And in one scene, maybe in the fourth season, when, spoiler alert, she and Logan break up, um, she, we all saw it coming. <laughs> um, she has this unbelievable cry in the sh- in a shower. Yeah, and having shot this movie where she has a really unbelievable cry, I like felt this like just this weird emotional reaction where like I was like reminded, even though I'm watching her face every single day editing my movie at this mm-hmm. point, like. Oh, yeah, like this isn't the first time. Like, yes, she has this unbelievable range. And we want to like we want to think of her as Sarah Marshall and Princess Anna and this pretty, pretty princess who has birds flying around her head. But like Mm -hmm. she's a real human being who's an unbelievably trained actor who is so willing to open up and go to her dark places. And she's got them because you know why? She's a human being and we've all got them. And like she will go there and. I it was so interesting just to watch Veronica Mars after I had done this because I feel like for me doing this movie with her was the first time like first time I had seen her really be dramatic. Yeah. So it was cool. Well, she's uh, you know, that's the thing is I don't think a lot of actors get uh, the chances to do their full range. Mm -hmm. Kelsey Grammer, I think, also gets pigeonholed because Mm -hmm. of, you know, this fantastic character that he played for something like what, like 15 years, 16 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But you see him act and you're like, oh, that's right. He's like a theater actor as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, he can do a restrained performance. He can pull it back. Uh, And he just and he does. And he's just so brave. It going there. So that's it? You, you couldn't come visit? You had to disappear completely? I guess you were too young to remember. I came back every week. But... Every time... we had to say goodbye, it just got harder and harder. You were... You were better without me there. And uh, finally, I just didn't come back. Sorry. Really, really am so sorry. It was the biggest mistake of my life. 
just he's so emotional, like as a human being, like he cries a lot and like he's just like so willing to like take those chances and like invest in a character and mm-hmm. like really like let it all out. Which yeah. is, was amazing. Um, we're going to come back after a quick break here. So yes. one quick break. We'll be right back. Beloved Maximum Fun Star Trek podcast, The Greatest Generation, is going out on tour. We are bringing Greatest Gen Con to a bunch of cities in the U.S. and Canada. It's our big tribute to slash send up of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And we have a big leg coming up. Yes, we are raising our legs on a number of cities <laughs> in the coming weeks. We're going to Washington, D.C. on August 23rd. The Bell House in Brooklyn, New York on August 24th. Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts on August 25th. Pittsburgh on the 28th. Boston, Massachusetts at the Wilbur Theater on the 29th. Atlanta, Georgia at the Earl on the 30th. Ferndale, Michigan at the Magic Bag on the 31st. Those are some great big rooms and some great big cities, Ben. And it's a really fun show. It's accessible even if you haven't listened to the podcast yet. We can't wait to see you when we're out on tour. Check greatestgencon.com for dates and ticketing information. And Khan is spelled K-H-A-N because Wrath of Khan, greatestgen, K-H-A-N.com. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here joined today by Lauren Miller-Rogan. Hello. And we're talking Unbreakable. <laughs> unbreakable. Um, I want to get into something that your movie doesn't have much of, but I want to talk about CGI because... <laughs> oh, uh, my movie has plenty, actually. Uh, okay, so this <laughs> yeah. is one of the things that I, I, I really... I'm, I'm always curious about where you employ CGI mm-hmm. and how that... Because um, a lot of people don't realize that so much of CGI is just hidden and mm-hmm. it's kind of like correcting mistakes sometimes mm-hmm. or just like accentuating certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one of the things I admire about this movie is that Shyamalan avoided using any of like the big CGI. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think CGI obviously is a bad thing. Yeah. Um, but it would be, it would have been bad for this movie mm-hmm. because uh, you know he's trying very hard to feel grounded mm-hmm. with an otherworldly premise, and mm-hmm. so it's it's hard if you've got like big explosions because then you're just playing into like the idea of the superhero, right? So it would have worked at cross purposes, um, but that refusal to work with digital special effects in that way also drove the story. Shumlin said, "Quote: I was thinking about a plane crash originally, about one person surviving and that person being untouched, and then that person realizes that he is a superhero. I remember the feeling of dread and excitement in the bedroom when I thought of it, but I wanted it to be as grounded as possible. I didn't want it to be a CGI movie in any way. So eventually, the plane had to morph into a train mm. because it has this kind of like older romantic feeling that kind mm. of grounds." it literally you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and it oh, kind of puts it in the in a kind of past tense right. even though it's set in the present right isn't the isn't how that train scene shot with the, the going back and forth between the seats it's beautiful <laughs> it's just one of those things i'd forgotten about it when i was watching it i was like oh my god i hope i'm someday even just 10 percent this good and he's like <laughs> you see him take off his ring and like oh, god just it's... remember that they actually did shoot an entire train crash. It's crazy. An entire entire one that they never used. Really? They flipped over a fucking train. They what? <laughs> I'm serious. They, wow. They That's shot, crazy. Like spent like a I don't know. Their million budget dollars? was higher than ours. Yes, it was. <laughs> you know, like and then they went back and said we don't want it. We don't right. need it. So just remember, like. He had a bigger budget, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you get a little, That's a little so more funny. leeway. That is so funny. But I, I like thinking about, um, you know, 
that in terms of, you know, when you use CGI, when you use the big things, the big mm-hmm. explosions, when you don't use them, when mm-hmm. it's better to pull back, trying to make things invisible. And also like the idea of like modes of transportation. A mm-hmm. train is obviously slower than a plane. A big fucking cruise ship is much slower than a train <laughs> yes. or a plane. Yes. <laughs> Although very windy, no matter how slow it's moving. One night when we were shooting outside, the the scene that takes place outside on the deck at night, yeah. um, it was so windy that we couldn't shoot. And um, we had a – there's a shot that's sort of from off the edge of the ship and we weren't going to be able to get that shot, which yeah. is an important shot to get. And wind-wise, everyone's hair was crazy. Sound just was not going to work. Yeah. Um, and I was doing one of those where I walk around grabbing my head like, what the fuck are we going to do? Because we're getting off the cruise ship in two days. And we're, what if tomorrow's night is the same? And what do we do? Yes. And um, and so thank God Royal Caribbean, who had become such amazing partners throughout this process um, – who they did not pay us, um, and, um, <laughs> contrary to what everyone wants to think, um, um, uh, called the captain who had sort of become a friend of the production, who's this awesome guy who is the captain of the largest ship in the ocean. So it's crazy Shit. when you think about it. Yeah. Um, but his name is Captain Johnny. And so he came down. He's this Norwegian guy. And he's, he, he has a parrot. Like, he's a captain who has a parrot. Yeah. It was at night, so the parrot had gone to bed. Yeah, sure. But (laughs) other times he came to visit set, and, like, he has a fucking parrot. So anyway, he comes down, and he's like, oh, you can't shoot? And we're like, no. And he's like, oh, do you want me to stop the ship? And I was like, I was like, can you stop the ship? Oh, sure, we stopped the ship. We stopped it for you. They stopped the ship for, like, two hours for us to shoot this scene, which, like, we otherwise wouldn't have been able to cover it in the way that we wanted to or or get it at, at all. And um, which was crazy, oh, but, but no visual effects in that one. Yeah, no. Where did well, you put actually, the... that's not true. That scene has a lot of visual effects. Does it? The stars in the sky. <gasps> all painting effects. all the little stars. There in were the sky. so many versions of that. <laughs> yes, you were like, that's too many stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could see them at night on the ship, but they didn't show up. And I wanted yeah. it to be this sort of like romantic starry night. Yeah. And so we had to put them back in because they didn't, camera didn't get up. <laughs> so, which is funny. <laughs> what else did you do for a CGI? I mean, I don't know how much I, I mean, want to reveal. There was a lot of fixing, a lot of like, because we shot with two cameras a lot. Because, I mean, our budget is not huge. We shot this movie in like 28 days. So, like, yeah. um, we had two cameras a lot. So, there were a fair amount of like painting out the other camera. Yeah, for sure. Um, which is so normal these days. Um, and, and that's, I mean, for, for folks who are listening uh, who aren't familiar, I mean, if you've got two cameras, you're probably getting coverage on the two actors at the same time during the same scene. Exactly. Right? Okay. Yeah. So, you don't have to take the time to shoot the same thing twice as long. You can shoot it. And you get, and then you get a natural reaction instead of like shooting one side and shooting the other. And that's not always possible, yeah. Depending on your your setup or et cetera. But we did that a lot. Um, the clock at the game show is CGI. Ooh. Um, we had it was like a green screen clock because because it was like there's no way to like shoot the time that we needed it to say when yeah. they were like running. I don't know exactly you know. exactly. So that was a green screen clock that became. A CGI clock. I think it looks pretty damn good. I, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. I did not notice mm-hmm. any of that. Um, you don't have to give away yeah. your secret. Those are those are the big ones. It'll I'll, be a fun I'll thing for those. people to try to like. Yeah, find the yeah. the hidden CGI. I'll and, like, say this: bother. a hidden gem. If anyone is listening and wants to look, so there's a time lapse shot in the sort of uh, early on in the second act of the movie. 
uh, right after they walk on the deck and she walks away from him on his on her cell phone and he stands there and then we cut to a time lapse shot that goes sort of from evening to nighttime. Yes. In the top, if you split the screen into four quadrants, in the top left quadrant, sort of in the middle, I'm not joking, there's a UFO. No. It looks like a UFO. It's a time lapse shot, so there is no explanation for the movement that it does. It it's crazy. So anyway, watch the movie. Maybe you'll see it. <laughs> but you have to really remember, like, divide the screen in four quadrants and the upper left quadrant, because otherwise you'll miss it. But it's there. I mean, tape it off for sure. Yeah. And, uh, Put the tape on, on your, your TV. <laughs> oh, God, if people are watching this on their cell phones, which they probably are, please don't. Don't um, do that. My, um, I don't think my listeners would, small. maybe. Not your listeners. That's true. Like these are, I mean, people. These are, these are people who actually go to the video store. That's true. Like people me. People go to the video store. Like me, they go to the video store because they love movies. And soon to be like me who's going to go to the video store. I know. Store. I just I convinced Lauren in the break to go to video stores again. So Because why wouldn't I? Because clearly I've been living my life in the wrong way until it's now. It's a date night, so Lauren. It's I'm a total date night. doing it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's one last thing that I wanted to talk about just a little bit, and that's the, the kind of luxury of certain filmmakers who, for instance, get to shoot in sequence from beginning to end. Oh, God. Unbreakable, you got to shoot uh, in sequence from beginning to end. Like, he had done The Sixth Sense, and they, you know, like, even though reviews were not so great, like, he... Had were reviews of Sixth Sense not great? Early reviews. The Like, the first year that came out, I think Amazing. New York Times and, and maybe Washington Post had kind of, like, trashed him Who or questioned him. are these him. fucking critics? I just... They're me usually me, Lauren. I, <laughs> Lauren, they're me. <laughs> we'll talk about it later. Be kinder to us, please. <laughs> but I, it's one of those things where he did have enough leeway where he was given free reign to shoot in sequence. And for, for you know, a lot of our listeners know that movies are rarely shot in sequence. Mm-hmm. You have to catch daylight when you can. You have to, you know, catch a certain kind of night or a sunrise or a sunset or, you know, and you can fake some of those things sometimes. But maybe you only have an actor for a certain number of days. And so you mm-hmm. have to only shoot with them. But he got to shoot in sequence, which wow. is a huge benefit <laughs> because... I mean, let's talk about the benefits, because you get to understand what bearing the scene before has on the next scene, Mm -hmm. emotional bearing. Mm -hmm. And you get to kind of rearrange certain things visually to kind of play off Mm -hmm. other things that you maybe you've noticed in the scene before. Yeah. But otherwise, you just have a script supervisor who's like, um, no, her hair was like this <laughs> yes. before three days ago when we shot this other yeah. scene. Yeah. So mm-hmm. hopefully that will cut together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's crazy to shoot out of order. I mean, the two movies that I've made and, and the shorts that I made certainly were not shot in order. So I don't know what that is like. I dream of it. It sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, but um, no, I, I, I think maybe the best script supervisor ever on this movie who was amazing um, but it's such an important role and it's hard, especially like when you're trying to track an emotional story. Yes. And shooting a scene that's come after an emotional scene is like crazy. Like we shot everything that t- takes place in New York was shot before on the cruise ship. So like the end of the movie that takes place in New York was shot before the cruise ship. The scene at Harry's house, yeah, which was in Florida, not Los Angeles, was before the cruise ship. So like we shot the end of the movie before they had really done any emotional scenes together. Yeah. Which is crazy. You have to trust your actors, too, that they can imagine what the emotions Mm -hmm. they would have would be. Well, that's why you get lucky when you get amazing actors. Man. Yeah. Casting. Mm -hmm. Casting is 
A hundred percent. It is so important. So, so important. Dude. Yeah. And hard. And hard, I'm <laughs> and sure. Hard. I'm Very sure. hard. Convincing people to say your words yes. and, in and front of a camera. take a chance on you and to trust you. Like, you know, and I'm so appreciative. Like, you know, Kristen and I bonded instantly over, like, women. Lift, lift women up and women filmmakers. And, like, this is so great. And female story and yada, yada. And that's great. And and Kelsey was never <laughs> against that. I don't want to say that. But, like, but I often think, like, he's he didn't have to trust me. You know yeah. what I mean? And, like, I don't want to, like, stereotype people, but, like, a lot of men his age wouldn't have trusted me, yeah. you know? And, like, he was amazing and that, like, he really, like, gave so much of himself for, like, a young female filmmaker, first-timer, you know? And, like, that's an incredible thing for, I think, for men these days to, like, really lift a woman up like that, which didn't go unnoticed or unappreciated by yeah. me. And I think um, uh, M. Night Shyamalan felt the same way as a filmmaker of color, too, Mm -hmm. where he was like, Mm -hmm. oh, people are taking a chance on me. I'm definitely one of very few at this Mm -hmm. level. And Mm -hmm. that was so, I mean, yes, take a chance on the young folks. Which we're just trying. Or the older folks. I mean, uh, I don't know. I'm not that young anymore. <laughs> that's the thing. Well, young in your career is right. what we'll say. Young not in like young yes. in age. Because yes. all of us can be young in our career. Yes. And yes. over a, a certain threshold. Yes. Especially <laughs> this career, which takes so long to get going. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, again, where can we see Like Father? You can watch Like Father along with millions upon millions of people in this world who have watched it on Netflix. Thank you so much for coming Thanks to for talk with us me. today. This was so nice. Thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. Here's a short and sweet one. Sarah Mo 21 says, April is the coolest. Thanks so much, Sarah. And I promise that Sarah is not my mother or any of my sisters. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher and and this is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.